It is Spirit Mornings here on the Spirit Catholic Radio Network. Bruce McGregor, delighted to have you along as we head to the good book, but we're going at it a different way today. And good morning and welcome to Scripture Study Extraordinaire with Sharon Dorn of the Seeking Truth Catholic Bible Study in the Archdiocese of Omaha. Sharon, good morning and welcome. Good morning, Bruce. Hi. Your first uh, soiree into the new main studio here. This is great. There's room for our our books. Our Bibles are open. This is awesome. It is totally awesome. All right, Sharon, today uh, the Church celebrates the Solemnity of the Immaculate Conception, a solemn dogma defined by Blessed Pope Pius IX in 1854. As Our Lady Immaculately Conceived is the patroness of the United States. As I mentioned, this is a holy day of obligation here in our 50 states. And uh, through the centuries, the Church has become ever more aware of Mary, full of grace through God. Uh, was redeemed from the moment of her conception, and that's what this feast day is all about. That's what the dogma of the Immaculate Conception confesses, as Blessed Pope Pius IX proclaimed in 1854. The Most Blessed Virgin Mary was, from the first moment of her conception, by a singular grace and privilege of Almighty God, and by virtue of the merits of Jesus Christ, Savior of the human race, preserved and immune from all stain of original sin. And Sharon, today we thought we might honor Mary by pointing out some of the scriptural connections that we know about our wonderful, fabulous, loving, blessed mother Uh, in the Bible. That's right. It took the church some time to figure this one out. But by the guidance of the Holy Spirit, uh, Pius IX, boldly, had the boldness to officially proclaim it doctrine. And my heart sings with joy when I get to speak about Mary. Mm -hmm. She is so lowly and humble, yet such a giant in the spiritual battlefield. Even even though the Immaculate Conception dogma didn't become dogma till 1854, the faithful, the church was hailing her and begging for her intercession well before that. As early as in the thousands, in about uh, 1030 AD, the faithful were repeating sacred scripture to honor her in prayer. They would say, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with you. And those are the words of the angelic salutation of Gabriel, the angel in Luke 128. And uh, they would say, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And that's Luke one forty two, where Elizabeth greets Mary. And, and Elizabeth there, we know, we're told that she was fully inspired by the Holy Spirit. And she says, how is it that the mother of my Lord should come to me? So during the 12th century, the church is already praying the first half of the Hail Mary. Yeah. And that spreads to the West and to the church. And on the fourth Sunday of Advent, the church began using Gabriel's words to Mary as the antiphon of the offertory at the Mass. And uh, the, the official second half of that prayer was introduced around 1493, confirmed in 1566 um, through the catechism that came out of the Council of Trent. Mm-hmm. But the first official liturgy containing the complete Hail Mary was in the Roman Braviary of 1568. That today, is uh, we call the Divine Office or the Liturgy of the Hours. But this prayer is cool because it combines the sacred tradition of God's written words with the sacred tradition of the oral or speaking magisterium of the Church. Right. And the church, Bruce, is a living, breathing church full of the Holy Spirit. And so this is a great example of these written and oral traditions displayed together in one prayer. And you know, Sharon, we know Mary was declared the mother of God by the Council of Ephesus in 431. Uh, but it took a long time to uncover the wonders of grace contained in those words. St. Mm-hmm. Irenaeus in the 3rd thir- century foreshadowed Mary's Immaculate Conception by calling her the new Eve. 
Uh, St. Ephraim of Syria, who was uh, alive from 306 to 373 A.D., was a poet, a hymn writer, and deacon, addressed Christ and Mary this way, You alone and your mother are in all things fair, for there is no flaw in you and no stain in your mother. Mm. And uh, the wonderful St. Ambrose, whose feast we celebrated just yesterday, wrote, Adopt me, however, not from Sarah, but from Mary, so that it might be from an incorrupt virgin, virgin by grace, free from all stain of sins. Oh, wow. wow. The, the early church fathers knew. They knew. And needless to say, Bruce, this prayer has stuck. And yeah. when something sticks that long, it has to be from God. That's what Gamaliel told them in Acts 5. It's, it must have been anointed by the Holy Spirit. It is. Mary says in her own Magnificat in Luke 1 that from now on, all all generations will call me blessed, all. She's not to be forgotten. She's not to be ignored. How many times a day do you think the Hail Mary is said around the world, Bruce? Well, I know in uh, my little realm, it's, <sighs> uh, it's a rosary a day. So. Yeah, that's the, well, there you go. That's more than 50, right? Yep. 53? And, and think of all the decades that are said by the Catholic faithful around the entire world. Um, in uh, the 25th year of his pontificate, uh, Pope John Paul um, um, released an apostolic doctrine on the rosary. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, he said the rosary, though clearly Marian in character, is at heart a Christocentric prayer. In the sobriety of its elements, it has all the depth of the gospel message in its entirety, uh, uh, of which it can be said to be a compendium. It's an echo of the prayer of Mary, her perennial magnificat for the work of the redemptive incarnation, which began in her virginal womb. With the rosary, the Christian sits at the school of Mary. Don't you love that? To sit at the school of Mary and be led to contemplate the beauty on the face of Christ and to experience the depths of his love. Through the rosary, the faithful receive abundant grace as though from the very hands of the mother of the Redeemer. John Paul loved Mary, Mm -hmm. and and, uh, this is where he introduced the new luminous mysteries, the mysteries of light. And and we really, we get to meditate on the complete life of Christ when we say the rosary. Um, I always like to look at what the church would put in, this is a high feast day, and she's the patron saint of our our country. So like the 4th of July, we should be celebrating, you know, the Immaculate Conception today. So Bruce, can you read us this first Mass reading, Genesis 3? The church in her wisdom has chosen these readings. I would love to. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. Ooh, yeah. now, 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 why? Why would the church, with all her wisdom, pick this reading for the lectionary at Mass today on this Marian feast day of the Immaculate Conception? This is about Adam and Eve and the fall of mankind. Why would they pick this on a day that we celebrate the sinlessness of Mary? Uh, because Mary is the new Eve. Right, yes. right, right, right. Mary is the new Eve. That's exactly right. Mary is the new Eve. As God once made an absolutely sin-free woman named Eve, he also 
creates another absolutely sin-free woman named Mary. And as the church fathers call her the new Eve, Adam named his wife Eve because she became the mother of all the living. Really? Eve? Mm. Really? The mother of all the living. Because after they sinned in the garden and fell from God's perfect grace, they weren't fully alive anymore. Is she really, really the mother of all the living? What happens to the fruit of her womb? (laughs) I mean, the fruit of her womb. Why does her first son, Cain, murder his brother Abel in cold blood? And Abel's blood cries out to the Lord for justice. Yes, she's the mother of the physically living, half of her family, one is dead, but the living are now spiritually dead. They've been banished to the east and out of the garden. The garden has been sealed off. And in verse 324, we're told that the one way into the Garden of Eden is guarded now with cherubim and a flaming, flashing sword back and forth. What's it guarding? What's it guarding? Uh, The way to the tree of life. That's right. That's right. God does not want them now to eat from the tree of life. What's his tree of life? That's a tree in the middle of the garden that was watered by the river of life. In Genesis 2, we're told in the middle of the garden, there was the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil and a river watering the garden flowed from Eden. So before the woman is ever created, God tells the man, only the man is is here now when God says Mm -hmm. that you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Did you catch that, Bruce? When they, they they could eat of any tree, any tree, any tree, and they can eat freely from the tree of life, but they choose the only tree in the garden that God has asked them not to eat of. Why? God is a God of life. And when you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. So now God goes on to create the woman. He's told that to Adam. Now he creates the woman because uh, God says, it's not good for man to be alone. I'm going to make a helper for him. And, and he looked around and there was no suitable helper found. So he puts Adam into a deep sleep. While he's sleeping, he takes one of the man, Adam's ribs, and closes it up with flesh and makes woman. And the man said, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. And uh, the man and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. Mm-hmm. They felt no shame because they had no shame. That's right. They were clothed with original holiness. They did not have original sin. They had never sinned yet. They were clothed in the glory of God, perfectly radiant, luminous, holy, able to stand before him and converse with him and be in perfect communion with him, perfect union with God. They were naked and unashamed. But after the fall, we see they quickly run and hide and cover themselves. Now, now they have shame. Now they have original sin on their souls. And now they will be separated from God, banished from God and his garden of paradise. Because this is a big old mean God of the Old Testament? No, 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 no. That's a heresy called Marcionism. God banishes them for their own protection because he loves them and he's a merciful father. He's a father of mercy. If they pick and eat from the tree of life now, before they are forgiven from their sin, they will never be reunited with God. They will live in a permanent state of sin, always separated from him. But God has a plan. The Father has a plan from the beginning of time. The plan is not plan B because man messed up. No, it's plan A. It was plan A all along, and the plan has a name, and the Father's plan's name is Jesus. And the Father's plan has a mother, and the (laughs) mother's name is Mary, and she will be the new Eve. 
she will be conceived in a state of original holiness, like the original Eve was. The God of the universe creates. He chooses. He calls. He deems how to carry out his perfect plan. He is God, and he has chosen Mary to be sinless, free of original sin. So, so surely when God said, if you eat of the forbidden tree, you will surely die. He's not the mother of the living. She's really the mother of the spiritually dead. Her children have no way back to the father. Mm -hmm. They may be physically alive, but they're eternally separated from God. But God has a plan to undo original sin. He has baptism in his mind, the river of life before the foundation of the world. And he offers a gospel, the first gospel, the first good news immediately after the fall of mankind. And it's called Proto-Evangelium, and it's in today's Mass reading, which is God's first good news, the first gospel. And uh, verse Genesis 3.15 says, I'm, and I'm going to insert, because um, he's talking to the serpent, so right. I'm just going to insert who he's talking to, because it gets a little confusing. He, uh, God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you, Mr. Serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring, Mr. Serpent, and hers. He, the woman's offspring, will crush your head, serpent, and you, serpent, will strike his heel, the heel of her, the woman's offspring. So, so some translations say seed instead of offspring. So a seed is promised, a seed born of woman. But if we take a look at the Greek, uh, the word for seed is spermatos. Now, women don't have spermatos. So how will this be, especially a new Eve, a virgin Eve, one who does not know man? This woman will be overshadowed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, there are two times in sacred scripture that Mary gets overshadowed by the power of the Holy Spirit. When the Immaculate Conception herself immaculately conceives the word into her womb by the power of the Holy Spirit, that's today's gospel. Mm -hmm. But the other time when Mary is overshadowed by the power of the Holy Spirit is when the church is immaculately conceived. Oh. In Acts 2, Mary's there with 120 others in the upper room when the Holy Spirit comes down on them with wind and fire, and the church is conceived that day. The church is born that day. Uh, Paul tells us um, in Ephesians 5, that the church uh, is to present herself to him as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless, without stain, wrinkle, any other blemish. Now that sounds like an immaculately conceived church to me, a church whose mother is Mary. The Catholic Church is a Marian church. Remember John 19 when Mary's standing in perfect fidelity at the foot of the cross and John calls her woman. The title, or Jesus, calls her woman. Woman, he calls his own mother woman. That's a, that's a big title. That takes us right back to the garden, the new Eve. And he gives her to John, who's one of the first priests in the new church. And he says, dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. Mary is the mother of the church. The Catholic church is a Marian church. She is the mother of the word that we hear at mass. She is the mother of the bread, the Eucharist we eat. She is the mother of Jesus, the name of the Father's plan. So, so that is an important, um, very important good news, that Proto-Evangelium. And that's why the church in her wisdom gives it to us today on this feast day. But it sounds in that uh, Proto-Evangelium that a great battle is going to be fought, crushing the head, striking the hills. Oh, yes, it'll be a great battle, the battle of a lifetime and the battle of every lifetime, because the serpent would like to own the soul of each and every person born from Adam and Eve. The serpent hates anything that is made in the image and likeness of God. 
The serpent hates this predicted seed of salvation that's supposed to come from the woman, and he's going to do anything in his power to undermine and thwart the conception of this sacred seed. Satan hates marriage. He hates marriage. He hates the marital embrace when it's pure and holy and not hampered with in any way. It reflects the image of the Trinity. Right. So, okay, um, we got some message from John also. Bruce, could you read Revelation 12? You bet. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God. There's that seed. There's that seed we've been waiting for, the child with the iron rod who would rule the earth. At verse 17, we're told that the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against her and her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Bruce, that's us. Mm -hmm. That's the church. He's still making war on us and the church. And Mary is still one of our best weapons. And St. Michael the Archangel also is mentioned in Revelation 12. He's also one of our best battle warriors. Um, on the cross, this male child who has come to rule the nations with an iron scepter does crush the head of Satan. The woman's offspring conquers sin and death with this resurrection from the grave. Death has no power over him. God's a God of life, and death has absolutely no power over him. And he frees all of us from death's power. In Christ, death has no power over us. We physically die but live forever in eternity. He's made a way back to the Father. There's no longer a flaming sword guarding the tree of life. We can now access the garden again and the bread of life from the tree of life. Mm. And, and that helps us going on the journey home to the Father each and every time we go to Mass and receive the tree of life. And, and so uh, it's just beautiful. Um, the gospel today is from Luke 1. Bruce, would you read the, today's gospel? I'd be delighted to. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and considered in her mind what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How shall this be, since I have no husband? And the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your kinswoman Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for with God nothing will be impossible. And Mary said, Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Oh, wow. thank you, thank yes. you. Okay, so let's just pick this apart a little bit. We are told that Mary is a virgin, 
And in Isaiah 7, 14, there was a prophecy that Isaiah, the prophet, gave, gave to King Ahaz. And this would have been um, Ahaz, we know, ruled from 731 to 716 BC. He was from the tribe of Judah and the house of David. Now remember, this is 700, over 700 years before Mary, um, the angel appears to Mary. But Isaiah says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Now, this is translated virgin in Hebrew, in Greek, in Latin. But, but virgins don't have children. So this is a very odd prophecy. How will this possibly be fulfilled? Well, over 700 years later, we get a greeting. Hail Mary, full of grace. Now, some translations have changed this to um, a greeting like, um, oh, highly favored one. Right. No, the Greek says, Hail Mary, full of grace. And the Greek word there is really important. It's kakeratomene. And that means full of grace. You who have been and continue to be graced, literally, it's a perfect passive participle in the Greek, mm -hmm. a present state of affairs that is the result of an action of the past. So the angel doesn't say, hey, Mary, you're, you're about to become full of grace. I'm going to zap you. But he, he says, you are already filled with grace and will continue to be filled with grace. Not hail, highly favored daughter. That's a, that's a more of a dynamic equivalent translation. Mm -hmm. The angel Gabriel says, hail, full of grace past, present, and future. And behold, your kinswoman Elizabeth in her old age has already conceived a son. And this is in the sixth month, and she was called barren. Nothing, nothing is impossible with God. So we see that Mary's going to visit Elizabeth, and, and Elizabeth will say to her, Blessed are you among women. Blessed is the child you will bear. Who are the blessed women in the Bible? If you go to the Holy Land and you visit the churches of visitation where this happened in the foothills of Judea, there are two other women painted on the wall of that church, painted there with Mary. And I was so curious, why would these two women be painted, one on each side of Mary? And church architecture can really help us catechize. Mm -hmm. And our tour guide was Dr. Tim Grave, the president of the oh, Augustan yeah. Institute. And, and he told us who these women were. The first one, and the name was under in Hebrew, the first woman is Jael. Well, who's Jael, and why is she with Mary? Jael is found in Judges chapter 4, and uh, this is at the time of Deborah, the prophetess who was leading Israel. Uh, Israel had a woman prophetess leading them, Deborah, and she predicted that the Lord would hand Sisera, this, this enemy commander, over to a woman. And so um, when Sisera comes to Jael, Jael, uh, we're told in Judges 4, the story, and it's just, it's just amazing. Jael went out to meet Sisera, and she said, come, my Lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. And she lets him into her tent. She puts a covering on him. He's thirsty. She gives him a skin of goat milk to drink. She covers him up, and, and, and uh, he says, stand in the doorway, and if someone comes, she, she says, don't worry, don't worry. You can rest. But while he's resting, he falls asleep, but Jael picked up a tent peg and a hammer and quickly, uh, while he was fast asleep and exhausted, she drove the peg through the temple of his head, and he died. <laughs> now, Bruce, Jael <laughs> is called the most blessed of all women. You know why? Because she's a head crusher. Yeah. And, and the ruling prophetess Deborah will give a song of praise in Judges chapter 5, and she's, Deborah says, oh, most blessed of women be Jael. Blessed of women, and, and, and uh, she says because she took the tent peg in her right hand and the workman's hammer, and she struck Sisera and crushed his head and shattered and pierced his temple. <laughs> so blessed be Jael, because Jael's a head crusher. Okay, so she's pictured on one side of Mary. On the other side of Mary in this church is painted on the wall Judith. 
Now, Judith is a book that was removed in the Protestant Reformation, but we have the inspired Word of God, the book of Judith, because the church has always deemed it inspired. And in Judith 13, 18, Judith went to the camp of Holfernes, the Assyrian enemy of the, uh, of the Israelites, Assyrian commander, and she lures him to safety. She tempts him into getting drunk, and then she takes Holfernes' own sword and hacks off his head as he lays in a drunk stupor. So many wonderful paintings show how Judith beheaded Holfernes. And Judith is blessed because Judith is a head crusher. Judith helps save Israel. So Uzziah says to Judith in Judah 13, Blessed, blessed are you, daughter, by the Most High God above all women on earth. Blessed is Judith. Judith is blessed because Judith is a head crusher. Now, why are these women painted on the wall with Mary? Mary is the only woman in the New Testament called blessed. Mary is blessed because Mary is a head crusher. And whose head does she crush? By saying, yes, let it be done to me according to your word. She helps crush the head of Satan. She says, yes, to the Lord, let it be done to me according to your word. She is receptive to the seed of life that will crush the head of death, allowing the Holy Spirit to implant that seed in her young poor virgin womb so her womb could bear the word of God to the world and crush the head of Satan by his perfect obedience to the father's will she gives her all her full yes and he gives his all every ounce of blood he has on the cross and then rises from the dead and his resurrection from the dead seals the deal death has officially been crushed death has no power over him or us if we believe in him and are baptized So, so, um, yeah. Now, how do we know? Here's another biggie. How do we know that Mary's immaculately conceived and that she has no sin? Is there a verse in the Bible for this? Show me the verse. No, no, there's not a verse in the Bible. Just like there's no verse in the Bible that mentions Trinity ever. The word Trinity is never mentioned in the entire Bible. Mm -hmm. This is a mystery of our faith and the church and her wisdom and full of the Holy Spirit and under the authority that Jesus Christ himself handed on to her. The church figures out the clues using what? Scripture. Well, where does it say that in the Bible? Uh, well, okay, I, I'm gonna, you got to stick with me here. Okay. Okay. Now, Bruce. I'm, I'm glued. I'm all right. Attentive. Okay. Do you remember when God told the Israelites to build an ark? Yes. Okay. Not Noah's ark from chapter six, but right. they were supposed to build this ark. And it's first talked about in Exodus chapter 25. And God tells them to make this ark and it's going to have golden rings and they're going to put poles through it and they're going to carry the ark on these poles. Well, the reason they have to carry the ark on these poles, it's going to contain the very presence of God and it cannot be touched. Mm-hmm. This ark is not to be touched. It must be 100% pure from sinful human hands. It is going to contain the very presence of God. And we're told in Hebrews 9 what's inside of there over time. Okay, the first thing in there is a jar of manna, and that was bread from heaven that kept them alive in the desert during their 40 years of wanderings. And then the tablets of the law are in there, and God gave them the law to help purify them and set them apart from the other pagan surrounding nations. Because they were to be a light to the Gentiles, and they were supposed to lead all the nations back to Yahweh, the one true God. And then the third thing in the Ark of the Covenant was Aaron's rod of authority, Mm. because Aaron was the high priest, and he was to be a mediator between God and the sinful people. And God made Aaron's rod sprout leaves and bloom almonds to show that Aaron had been given the authority to rule his people, direct authority from God. So this Ark contains the true presence of God. Now, this Ark had to be reverenced with absolute great respect. And one time David's men were carrying the Ark to Jerusalem, and they were going through 
the foothills of Judea. And it's in 2 Samuel 6. And when they are moving the ark, one of the men, Yuza, reached out toward the ark and took a hold of it because the oxen nearly upset it and, and, and he slipped and he touched the ark and the anger of the Lord burned against Yuza and God struck him down for his irreverence and he died there on the spot by the ark of God. Now David became angry because of the Lord's sudden outburst against one of his good men, Yuza. I mean, this is a man he trusted to carry the ark. This was a good man. He accidentally slips and falls. Right. And, and now David is afraid. This ark is, this is, this is the powerful presence of God. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? How is it that the ark of the Lord can come to me? Now, Bruce, the only other time when we see a phrase almost exactly identical to this in the Bible, in all of Scripture, is when Mary goes to visit Elizabeth. Right. And do you remember the location of the visitation? Uh, that would be in the foothills of Judea. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's right. Now, do you remember what Elizabeth says to Mary? Uh, how is it that the mother of my Lord could come to me? Yes, the exact same phrase that wow. David used, the exact same location in the foothills of Judea where David stood with the ark. Now, what was inside the ark was so holy that Yusuf struck dead just by accidentally slipping and touching it. What is inside Mary is so holy that nothing unholy can touch it. No sin can be inside of Mary. For she's going to be the new Ark of the Covenant to, the ho to house the very presence of the living God. She must be a pure, holy vessel that will hold the most high incarnate God within her for the next nine months. She's 100% holy. She's 100% pure. She's the immaculate conception, the new Ark of the Covenant, the new Eve. Mary, the new Eve, will bring spiritual life to her children once again. She will bring them back into access with the tree of life and the river of life. The tree of life will be the cross of Christ. Blood and water are going to flow from his pierced side as she stands under the cross. The water is the river of life from Genesis 2 that flows from his side that baptizes us. The water of baptism in the new covenant, the blood from his side will be the food of life, the tree of life. This tree of life once in the middle of the garden, but after the fall they've been banished from it for their own protection. But now this tree will have the fruit for the healing of the nations. Mm -hmm. This tree of life will bloom in all seasons. This tree of life can freely be eaten from again. This tree of life is the true bread that came down from heaven. This tree of life is Jesus' real, true presence in the Eucharist. And the very last chapter of the Bible tells us that on each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. So as the Ark of the Covenant, Mary is pure and holy. Joseph, too, must be pure and holy. They live in the presence of God. They share an abode with God. As they could not touch the old Ark of the Covenant, Joseph will not touch the new Ark of the Covenant. Mm -hmm. Nothing can touch her, not even Joseph. But St. Joseph will have the grace from the Holy Spirit to protect Mary's virginity. He will have the grace needed to stay chaste and pure in their marriage. He's given a high calling to protect the ark and its contents. And Joseph has the grace that he will need to be a chaste spouse. So men out there, pray to St. Joseph for chasteness in your marriage. He understands. He intercedes on your behalf if we just ask him. Satan hates marriage because it images the Trinity. And right. he will do anything in his power to thwart marriage. He'll tempt you with things that threaten your pureness and your chastity. But when, um, now, when Mary sees Elizabeth, something happens. And Mary has not even told her she's pregnant. Because remember, there's no cell phones. Yeah. <laughs> so the baby in Elizabeth's womb leaps. 
And this baby, John the Baptist, who has also been conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in an old barren womb that should have never conceived, this fetus is leaping inside her. The fetus knows that he's standing in front of the new ark and that he's in the presence of the Lord. After the peril of moving that ark, when David had a man die in the process, um, most likely a good man that he trusted with the ark, he's coming into Jerusalem, he cannot contain himself. David starts leaping and dancing with all his might in front of the ark, and he's wearing a linen ephod. Now, a linen ephod is not kingly garb, and David's the greatest king in Israel. Why is he wearing priestly garb, not kingly garb? David is in the presence of the Lord. He's coming into the holy city of peace, the city of Shalom, Jerusalem, and he cannot contain himself, and he's shouting with gladness, and they're sounding the trumpet, and the ark is being brought in, and David is dancing before the Lord with all his might wearing a linen ephod, and John the Baptist will be leaping in front of this new ark, Mary, immaculately conceived, the immaculate conception, pure and holy, with her yes to the Lord, her full yes, let it be done unto me according to your word. She's the new Eve, she's the new covenant, and she's our mother. Amen. And uh, folks, uh, it is a uh, Holy Day of Obligation today, so want to encourage as many of you listening out there as possible, uh, plenty of masses at plenty of parishes, Sharon, so uh, no uh, no excuses today. That's right. I'm on my way. Where right. can I hit at 8.30? <laughs> <laughs> we'll That's have to uh, find our uh, gotomass.com website there. Sharon Doran from the Seeking Truth Catholic Bible Study. God bless you, Sharon. Thanks for being with us today. We appreciate it. Thank you, Bruce. God bless.